Luke 13, 31 through 35. At that time, some Pharisees came and told him, Go, get out of here. Herod wants to kill you. He said to them, Go tell that fox, Look, I'm driving out demons and performing healings today and tomorrow, and on the third day I'll complete my work. Yet it is necessary that I travel today, tomorrow, and the next day, because it is not possible for a prophet to perish outside of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophet and stones those who are sent to her. How often I want to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you are not willing. See, your house is abandoned to you, I tell you. You will not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you for that, Delaney. So one of the, the things you do is like you're preparing a sermon, um, at, you know, obviously with all the research and everything is that you have to come up with a title. Um, unfortunately, the only thing that really kept running through my mind was the song, What Does the Fox Say? And so even now, that's what's going on in the back of my head. So um, just know that's kind of where my mind has been this week. So, All right. So it's... <laughs> You're going to think of that as well, too. Like I said, that's it. Like, once it gets in there, it does not leave. So, um, but yeah, thank you for everyone uh, showing up today. We definitely, uh, you know, appreciate you being here. Um, you know, as I, we're, we're going into these verses and really kind of talking about this interaction that Jesus is having with a group of people around him that are telling him, hey, you need to get out of here um, because Herod wants to kill you. And then his response is a very, like, just confident. And the title of my sermon, I said undeterred, because that's really what it was, Jesus being undeterred by these circumstances around him. Now, in order to kind of get a full grasp of what's going on here and kind of um, how we need to kind of be looking at these verses, I'm going to go back. And we're going to look a little bit further back, and we're just going to kind of take a, a run-up to what's going on right now. So... Um, one of the first things that we see is it starts off in chapter 12, where we see Jesus having this kind of conversation with Pharisees where he's like calling out the Pharisees for their beliefs and he's pushing against them. Um, he condemns them a lot. In fact, you see this here in kind of the first verses where he says, beware the leaven of the Pharisees. Um, because he knows their thoughts, their actions, and what they're trying to do. They were a part of this, this establishment, and it was an establishment where earthly leaders had placed themselves and they propped themselves up within the kingdom of God, where they made themselves the key holders to the, the actual kingdom and how to give to heaven. And they were the ones that said, hey, you are worthy, you are not worthy. And Jesus came to rebuke that, and he had many interactions with it. Now, as we move into verses, or to chapter 13, and the first 10 verses, we have a really interesting story that we didn't touch on a whole bunch, a whole lot here earlier on, but there's a story about like these uh, Galileans who had their blood mixed with sacrifices, and we really don't know kind of a lot of what that means, and then right after that, he talks about just this random tower that falls on people, and the question was, like, did these people have this significant sin in their lives that caused that? 
Now, again, I, we don't know a lot about that first section. There are some kind of historical accounts where we see things like um, there's a story of Pilate where there was a time where he was wanting to build this aqueduct from uh, basically one of the pools into the city of Jerusalem. And to do that, he went into the temple and he stole the temple money, that which was dedicated to God. Um, so the Jews he kind of sent out this delegation in order to kind of protest uh, what was going on. During that time, Pilate actually had you know, his soldiers dress up as Galileans and essentially kind of kill uh, them on their way to do their protest. Now, so what we kind of see is that there's probably something that happened like that in this time to where you know, Pilate acted out in kind of that same way where he killed people that were going out in order to do uh, you know, some sort of, uh, you know, some sort of like sacrifice or kind of, kind of this you know, repentance or cleansing act. Now, the important thing to kind of get from these first few verses is that it was that their circumstances did not describe their standing with God. So it wasn't that the fact that you had these evil people went up and then just killed this group of, of Jews, or just this random act where you had just innocent people that were sitting there that ended up dying just from this tower falling. They were not more sinful than the rest of the people. Right? What he's challenging is, is kind of this belief of legalism and works. Right? It's if you have good works, if you have enough faith, nothing as bad is going to happen to you. Right? Like if you, if you give enough and you act well enough, you're going to be rich, you're going to be successful, you're going to have all these things. That's, and that's wonderful. You know, God does grant those things. But the opposite is not true. Just because that if you are poor or if you're in you know, dire circumstances, it doesn't mean that there's sin in your life that... God now has left you and now you need to repent in order to kind of get back into this good graces. That's, that's not true. Um, and Jesus, again, is kind of bringing everyone into the same fold at this point. He's basically saying that it is not the, it's not the sin, it's not the circumstances that dictate who you are, but in a sense, it is your repentance. It is your repentance that brings you into this place to where you have right standing with God. Um, here's actually a, a, a couple quotes here. So in Matthew 5:45, you know, Jesus says, you know, the rain falls on the just and the unjust alike. Spurgeon, um, he actually gives this quote. He says, it is true a wicked man sometimes falls dead in the street, but has not the minister fallen dead in the pulpit? Is it true that a pleasure boat in which men were seeking their own pleasure on Sunday has suddenly gone down? But is it not equally true that a ship which contained none but godly men who are bound on excursion to preach the gospel has gone down to. So we hear stories all the time of, of people that are going out to do the work of the Lord. Bad things happen. Um, they end up getting killed. Um, and in a sense, that, is, that was their purpose. That was their lot in life of sacrificing themselves to go out, to put themselves aside in order to serve and to minister the gospel. Um, <clears throat> Now, again, kind of, you know, kind of reemphasizing um, this whole point that just because you are in a place of authority or right standing doesn't necessarily mean that you are the, you know, especially the Pharisees at this point were the ones that were essentially in charge of the kingdom. Um, and we see that kind of through the story of Jonah a lot. So if you, if you go back and if you kind of look at the story of Jonah, Jonah was a prophet who did not want to see this enemy town, this, this town of just uh, unbelievers and pagans. He didn't want to see them to come to know the Lord. So he just ran away. He went to the other way. He went to another direction. Um, but God in his grace 
took this people that had no understanding of morality, had no understanding of their, their own sin, and he brought them out of it, and he saved them, um, even using a prophet that really didn't want to be there. That's kind of why this, uh, this doctrine that's kind of come up in Christianity and just in the world of, of being a good person, it's not really fair. And you, you've probably heard it said before. It's like, well, I don't really subscribe to religion. It's more about, hey, you just got to be a really good person. Because if you're a really good person, God's going to let you in. Now, there's a big problem with that. And I can kind of relate that to, uh, you know, my salvation story, my wife's salvation story. Um, so I myself, like, you know, I, I grew up in, uh, in a non-Christian home. And when I was 11 years old, my parents got divorced. And that kind of sent me into this kind of tailspin of just like, uh, just, you know, not being able to deal with my emotions and making bad decisions of getting into a lot of troubles of getting, you know, kind of kicked out of some schools and, you know, just kind of being that kid that, you know, you didn't want your other kids to hang around, you know, that sort of thing. Um, it was kind of this series of like events of my sin that kind of brought me to a place where like I had to end up going to this, this private school. Um, and eventually God found me in this private school. And then it was through that where I ended up becoming a Christian. Um, my wife, on the other hand, her story's a little bit different. Her story was that she grew up in the church. Like, she also tell you, like, was it like two weeks old, three weeks old? Like, you know, your mom carried her into, into church, and she was there. And so she grew up in the church, and she was involved in everything. Um, she was, you know, leading, you know, worship at a lot of places. She was actually on staff at one point with a, with a few different churches at one time. Um, but there was a moment that she had when she was 19 years old where she realized she actually wasn't saved. And God found her at that point. And that's kind of the problem with the just being a good person is what is going to save you. It actually leaves out the bad people. It leaves out the people that didn't have any kind of moral foundation in their life. So basically what we're saying in order, if, if salvation is about you being good, then the person that grows up in a broken home doesn't have a chance. The, per, the, the drug dealer, the druggie, the one that's down on their luck doesn't have a chance at salvation. But what Jesus does, he goes in there and he says, everyone is equally far away from God. And I'm the one that brings you to me. And it's such an amazing thing. It is such an amazing thing that we see Jesus starting to bring out in these, in these sections. In fact, he goes a little bit further when he into verses 10 through 17, where we talk about the woman that was in this bondage and she was, um, she was debilitated by this, this disability. And what we learn from here, that it was only repentance that can not only heal her of this physical disability, but also uh, rid her of the spiritual bondage that she had since birth. Repentance now is a very, very big key of who we are as Christians and signifies uh, more and more of, of what we need to do in order to be a part of the kingdom. Uh, and this is one of those things that seems to like always just kind of pop into my mind and I'm always confronted with the fact of how much I need my sins forgiven and how much I need of, um, of repentance. Um, in fact, uh, last night, my wife and I, were, we were talking about just kind of our past and our story of coming up here and just what it was, what it was like and kind of the struggles that I had as a, as a young man, as a, as a man that I had when I was first married and not being able to control my emotions and, and, and acting inappropriately and just you know, 
just dealing with a bunch of sin and the hurt that I had caused of my family during that time, and just being reminded of that fact of who I was, and just, just what it did and how it continues to hurt and, and those things that it's just, I'm always reminded of the need for repentance. I'm always reminded of the need that Jesus has to continually save me and continually sanctify me. Because that sin is just a part of our lives. And so, as I'm, I'm a firm believer in, in repentance, and, um, you know, a lo- and obviously a lot of the things that, you know, we're talking about, and Courtney and I talked about were things that happened years and years ago. But it's important to know that um, I need to continually be repentant of the things that I've done in the past, of just not being a great father, not being a great husband, of um, just not being emotionally aware of the things that I, would, that I did at the time and to acknowledge that I need that repentance and I need to continually pray for my wife and my family about those things. So repentance is key because it's that repentance, again, that releases us from that spiritual bondage. And if we don't confront our sin, if we don't take our sin to Jesus on a regular basis, that bondage will continue to creep up and control our lives. And it will add more hurt to places where there's hurt. Um, It will continue to kind of reverberate around us. So in order to be released from that, in order for your family to be released from that, in order for this city, this world to be released from that, Christians have to repent. We have to repent. We have to acknowledge our sin and we have to give it to Jesus. It's because it's those things that are going to continue to to change the world. And it's those things that are going to allow us to be able to continue this work that Jesus has started. In fact, Jesus kind of reflects on this a little bit more when we get into verses 18 to 21, where he talks about the mustard seed and the leaven example. Um, There are two things we really want to point out here. So number one, that because of Jesus' work on the cross, that the kingdom of God is no longer just accessible to just the Jews, uh, but now it's accessible to everyone. But two, one of the things he points out is that human ambitions will seep into the church. And so when you look at these two examples, he's not only explaining what's, what's kind of going to happen now, but he's also explaining kind of like what happened prior um, to Jesus uh, kind of going to the cross, but then explains kind of what happens in the future. So when you kind of look at a couple verses here, um, you know, it talks a lot about the mustard seed turning into tree. When we hear trees, oftentimes, especially in the Old Testament, um, it does kind of refer to human governments and, and birds uh, kind of making nests in there. Birds can sometimes be symbols for evil spirits. We see that in Revelation. And then uh, I'm going to read you this quote from, uh, from a pastor. His name is uh, George Morgan. He says this, uh, This parable accurately describes what the kingdom community became in the decades and centuries after the Christianization of uh, the Roman Empire. In those centuries, the church grew abnormally large in influence and dominion. It was a a nest for much corruption. Birds lodging in the branches most uh, probably refers to elements of corruptions which take refuge in in the very shadow of Christianity. And so you see this kind of happen just a few hundred laters after Jesus dies. Um, Constantine, at that point, adopts Christian, Christianity as a main religion of Rome. And so what Jesus is here, he's reinforcing the fact that you cannot gain access to the kingdom by exerting power or control over it. And th- this was his main argument against the Pharisees, is that they were trying to control something. They were the ones that wanted to be in charge of what it meant to be a holy person. And he's saying, no, that's not how it's, this is going to work. And then even though Jesus died... And he rose again to free us from that. 
our human nature wants to continue to exert control into things like the church, like the kingdom of God. That's why it kind of explains so much of what we see right now. So this type of thinking, um, this view gives rise to things like secularism in the church. Um, in some places, you get this kind of cultural Christianity where, you know, you're, you say that you're Christian, but, you know, you, there's really kind of no life change or any kind, of, uh, any kind of sign other than that you're saying that you're a Christian. Um, we see this Christian nationalism that's popping up where we're kind of elevating politics and whether you're a Republican or a Democrat on the same level of Christianity. Um, we've seen syncretism where we kind of take a molding of different religions and putting them together and still calling it a, the, the Christian way. In a sense, all these things are doing is that they're making a very selfish gospel. And the Bible, throughout the Old Testament, Gospels, gospels and Epistles have been warning against this. It's definitely not a new thing. Uh, if we look at Ezekiel 13.9, um, Ezekiel says, you know, my hand will be against the prophets, God says, through Ezekiel, my hand will be against the prophets who see false visions and speak lying divinations. They will not be present in the council of my people or be regarded in the register of the house of Israel. They will not enter the land of Israel. Then you will know that I'm the Lord God. Jesus says in Matthew 24, 24, for false messiahs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders to lead you astray, if possible, even the elect. Difference, and then in 1 John 4, 1 in the epistles, dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see if they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And so it's, it, it wasn't a surprise as Jesus was talking about these things and kind of explaining what was going to happen with the church and what was already taking place with the church, that he was warning everyone to be careful about these false teachings that are going to kind of seep in. And then again, we see that a little bit more in verses 22 through 30, where we talk about the narrow gate, and that's something that, that Frank talked about last time. And it's showing that, and Frank kind of mentioned two things that I really want to bring out, that number one, salvation is personal. Uh, it's not about just a group of people, but it's an individual decision. And the other thing is that it only comes through Jesus. Um, and he emphasizes the importance of this, of the narrow gate and entering through it, by talking about hell. And it is something that we don't talk about very often. Um, and in fact, I want to I read a quote here. Um, it says, I've always said that I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life, and you think it's not really worth telling them this because it might make it socially awkward, and atheists who think that people shouldn't proselytize and say that they should just leave me alone and keep your religion to yourself... How much do you have to hate somebody not to proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is not possible and not tell them that? I mean, if you believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe the truck was bearing down on you, there was a certain point where I would tackle you. And this is more important than that. Now, this isn't coming from a, from a great theologian. Uh, this is actually coming from uh, Penn Jillette. Um, of uh, Penn and Teller, the magicians, he's, he's actually an atheist. And this is one of his main kind of um, things that he holds against Christianity is the fact that so many people, if Christians really believe these things, they would actually be more upfront about sharing their faith, sharing who Jesus is. And he takes the fact where that doesn't ha happen that much is for the fact that people really don't believe it. 
And it's even more important when we're talking about the narrow gate where we have to be repentant. So we have to acknowledge the sin that's in our lives. We have to acknowledge the struggles that we have in our sinful nature and how we've sinned against God in order to enter that narrow gate. Now, we finally kind of head into our verses here. Um, so in verses 31 through 35, it talks about Herod. So it's kind of important to know, like, what, what is a Herod? Um, so Herod, uh, he's a, a Roman-appointed king of Judea. Um, and in fact, the original Herod is Herod the Great, or Herod Magnus. Uh, he was actually um, a, a friend of Mark Antony. Mark Antony actually made him a, a, the Tetrarch of Galilee. And the Herods were tasked with ruling those areas in order to keep them in line. So the Romans knew, hey, the best way in order to kind of keep uh, this, this country at bay or to keep the peace is to establish a local ruler. So this is somebody that's of the people. They kind of look the same. And then they gave them a lot of power, a lot of authority, and a lot of wealth. So his job was to make sure that everything kind of remained uh, normal. Now, many times Herod's had to squash rebellions. This particular Herod, the older that he got, the more and more, um, the more and more he got worried about um, rebellions popping up. He became a lot more anxious person. He, be, he grew more mentally unstable, and over time, it got to the point he was worried that his family was going to overthrow him, which leads him to kill his firstborn, Antipater. Then he also orders the killing of all the infants in Bethlehem. So this lines up with the, uh, with the, um, the story of Jesus' birth. Now, this particular Herod... Um, was somebody different. So after Herod the Great, there was actually six Herods um, there, there were, that were all mentioned in the Bible. We have Herod Philip I, we had Archelaus, we had Antipas, and we have uh, Chalice, um, Herod Agrippa I and II. There was also Philip II, who technically necessarily wasn't a Herod, but he was mentioned in Luke 3. But the person we're talking about here is Herod Antipas. He was married to Herodias. Now, if you know anything, if you're kind of familiar with the story, Herodias was previously married to his brother, uh, Herod Philip I. Um, now, why this is relevant is because this is essentially what led to John the Baptist being killed. So Herod was worried about this rebellion that was going to pop up, um, worried that John was getting a little too influential, and then so he had him imprisoned. The problem was we had him in prison. He actually started listening to him. He's like, hey, I kind of like this guy. You know, he's, he's interesting. Didn't really know what he was saying a lot. A lot of the things that John the Baptist said confused him. But he was like, ah, I kind of want to keep this guy around, keep him in prison. Um, however, because John the Baptist kept condemning the, the relationship between Herodias and, and Herod, um, his wife, uh, going through his daughter, ended up convincing Herod Antipas in order to kill John the Baptist. I believe this happened somewhere around A.D. 28, um, and it's most likely um, before this point in Jesus' life right now where Jesus is making the statement. Now, what was Herod's intent? Well, Herod's intent was to uh, quelch this rebellion that John the Baptist had. And the same thing for Jesus right now. Jesus was growing in influence. He had crowds of people behind him, and that made Herod nervous because that made the Romans nervous. So whenever you have this dynamic and not wanting to, to lose power, there is this idea, hey, we have to start, we have to do something about Jesus. And this kind of what leads out to the Pharisees as well too. So what was the Pharisees' intent? 
Well, when they were saying, hey, Jesus, you need to leave because Herod wants to kill you, they really weren't concerned about Jesus' well-being at this point, all right? For the same reason, they wanted Jesus to leave this area and to get out. Um, we also know that Jesus wasn't, you know, afraid to rebuke them. He did this publicly throughout, the, throughout Scripture. But they also knew that the people would riot if they tried to arrest Jesus or do something out in front of the crowds. So that's why like, after the Last Supper, when Jesus, you know, gets arrested finally, that's why it happens in the middle of the night. Because they didn't want anybody around to see that because they didn't want to have to deal with uprisings. And what was Jesus' intent at this moment? Well, the first thing we have to remember that he knew that, um, you know, John the Baptist had been killed. Now, John the Baptist was also Jesus' cousin, right? So there you cannot separate and say there wasn't some sort of emotionality in there as well, too. Like, um, and so when he calls Herod that fox, to know that a fox is a, a very cunning but a weak animal. And so that was kind of the view. When you called somebody a fox, you would say, okay, this person is smart, he's sly, but he's weak. And that's what Jesus is showing here is that, listen, you are weak. Not only that your authority is propped up by the Roman government, but ultimately my authority, Jesus' authority, is the one that kind of just gives, um, gives authority to anybody in power in the nations. And that can be taken away at any point. Now, what he emphasizes kind of through the rest of these verses that he says he will continue his journey today, tomorrow, and then on the third day he will complete his mission. Well, what was Jesus' mission at this point? Well, if we look at verses 34 and 35, it says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks in her wings. But you weren't willing So your house is abandoned to you. I tell you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And we kind of go back a little bit here. We talk about the narrow gate. You know, we hear Jesus saying, you know, many will cry, Lord, Lord. What he's saying is that Jesus knew people could not save themselves. People couldn't control or manipulate themselves into the kingdom. They're not able to keep the law. Even the good people are going to falter. They're going to fail. That there is a need for a great sacrifice in order for us to be able to avoid eternal judgment, to be freed from our spiritual bondage in order to enter that narrow door, which is Jesus Christ. And so what we want to do now is that as we are as we were thinking about Jesus' mission, where he, he, he was beaten, he went to the cross and died, and he rose again in order to show himself conquering death, to show us that we can have eternal life. We know that Jesus was undeterred in completing his mission. And it was through that sacrifice where now where we can participate in that kingdom work. So in Matthew 28, 16 through 20, The 11 disciples traveled to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that I have commanded you. And remember that I'm with you always to the end of the age. So we are commanded to continue the mission until it is complete. 
And that's a call for every single one of us. It's not a call just for leaders, for pastors, for elders, for members. Every single Christian needs to be committed into completing Jesus's mission. And this is how we're actually going to do that here at the Hallows. So we're, gonna, we're actually going to enter into our time of communion right now. Now, the way that we're going to do communion is that we're going to have everyone come up, uh, get your communion elements, and then kind of go back to your seats and stand there. Um, I'm going to invite uh, Jake and Alexa and Frank and Debs to come up, and they're going to stand here in front. Um, we're all going to take communion together, um, and then we are going to commission their families as elders in the church. And we are going to pray over them that God would give them strength, that God would give them the ability, the boldness, the, the energy to continue that work. So uh, we're going to have uh, Marina come up. Marina's going to go ahead and she's going to play for us for a bit. Um, we're going to have a couple people that should be handing out elements. Um, I don't know if we have people. So Austin, would you, uh, would you mind actually taking a Courtney? And if you both can, uh, can hand out those elements, I appreciate that. Thank you. So I'm going to pray. Marina will start playing. Uh, we'll have everyone get up, get their stuff, get back to their seats. I'll invite uh, Frank and uh, the Mayfields and the Hesses up to the front. We're going to pray and we're going to take communion together. So Jesus, we thank you, Lord, for your goodness and grace. We thank you, Jesus, for your um, unfailing strength and your undeterred nature to complete your mission, Father. And we thank you, Lord, that you have invited us to be able to participate in this work, to be co-laborers with Christ. We don't deserve it. In fact, it sometimes doesn't even make sense that you want to use people like us to do this because we fail all the time. But Lord, you are so gracious in your love and compassion that you allow us to participate in that. We thank you for that, Jesus. We pray, Lord, that you would just kind of bless this time and Lord, that you would just, uh, your presence, your spirit would just cover everyone in this room. We love you, Jesus. Your name we pray. Amen.